If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hi, and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Connie Loises. Today, I'm joined by our own Danny Crichton. Hi, how are you? Good. Crunch-based news is Alex Wilhelm. Hello, everybody. Hey, Alex. And our guest this week is Jules Maltz, a longtime investor with IVP. Jules, so glad to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so a lot to talk about, as always. But uh, the big story today is the schizophrenic stock market. Guys, what is going on? Alex, I know you've probably been close following this more closely than anybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're a stock market fan, it's been a fantastic uh, kind of week of uncertainty and dramatic movements. Now, I know this is a venture-themed show, so I won't bang on too long about this. But for everyone out there who's kind of curious, you know, the, the public markets do impact startups and startup valuations and kind of venture cycles to some extent. So this stuff matters a bit. It's not as directly linked as like people raising new funds, but it's still fascinating. And if you were asleep yesterday, you missed a – well, actually, I'm not sorry. This is uh, Friday for you. So on Wednesday, the stock market took a dramatic drop. Uh, the NASDAQ fell, I think, 4.4%. We had drops at the S&P and the Dow. The NASDAQ actually dropped into officially correction territory, so more than a 10% movement uh, before it kind of came back today. So in the last 24 hours, there's been a seesaw in the public markets. And each time this happens – I think it's happened now for the last couple of weeks – uh, everyone's curious if we're about to see the beginning of the end of this long uh, bull cycle. So, Danny, um, were you afraid or do you think this is just one more of those little airdrops we've seen recently that kind of goes away in a few days? I, I think we're going to see more of it. I mean, I think I think stock investors are really struggling to figure out how to value um, these companies. In some cases, in the SaaS space, I think a lot of people know that the multiples are overheated. But then you have a lot of good news at the same time. Uh, Tesla had one of its first uh, profitable quarters in some time. And, and Twitter had some really good news and is up 16% today. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. And I think uh, investors are just trying to parse through all that data. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what happened yesterday? So, so uh, you know, Twitter. I mean, Twitter. Yes, as Danny said, uh, up today. Tesla, really big deal. He mentioned that it was profitable. But this is just the third time it's ever had a profitable quarter. So that's huge. But why did the market react so terribly yesterday? Was it was it you know something having to do with China, with Saudi Arabia, with everything? It is so hard to know. And if I could predict the stock market, I'd be in a totally different job. Yeah, yeah. But it, I think what people forget, I was talking to my colleague, Roseanne Winsek at IVP, and, and she had this funny quote. She said, twice a year, people forget that this happens twice a year. <laughs> and literally, the stock market goes down like this. It's not that unusual that you're going to have a big correction. In January and February of 2018, we had exactly the same thing. In 2016, we had a big correction. I think it actually... In some ways, it's a little bit like letting air out of the balloon, mm -hmm. and it helps. We've had such a large run-up for the last nine years, essentially. Um, this can't continue, and it we need some of these little uh, pockets of softness that make allow people to reset, and then hopefully we have growth from here. But until it actually goes down consistently, another 10%, 15%, I think that's when the private markets start changing. For now, I think it's all systems go. Okay, fair enough. But one thing I've been tracking um, probably for too long now, it's been kind of the best number of cloud index, which is a, kind of a basket of public companies that are in the cloud slash SaaS space. And in the last couple of days, there's probably been the biggest correction I've ever seen in that index to date. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious what is enough to drive change. 
You know, uh, I think you're right. We're not there yet. I don't think IVP is going to change its investing cadence or plan based on a couple of days with NASDAQ moving down. But at some point, things do get bad enough that people do change. And I'm very curious to see, one, what that is, and two, how we'll first be able to detect that in the venture markets as a whole. Is it going to be a slowdown in like, you know, series A and B? Is it going to be later stage slowdown? I don't know, but I'm just trying to figure out when I'm going to see that first ripple of material change in the pace of venture investment, which has been at all-time highs for some time now. It's been fascinating, but I don't know what it's going to be. So, so Alex, when you talk about this Bessemer Index, this is a, a bucket of publicly traded companies, and you're saying that the, sh- the share prices have been sinking? Yeah, in the last about, a, I want to say about a week and a half. And so I, I use this as kind of a bellwether because uh, cloud slash SaaS companies have had a dramatic run-up in, in multiples, as Danny mentioned a few minutes ago. And so I think they've been kind of a momentum play among public investors looking for kind of like old-school tech growth. Mm-hmm. And so I think they may be some of the first to show a uh, change in investor sentiment that could then trickle backwards into the private markets. Um, and just for the the big nerds out there, uh, Bessemer just worked with the NASDAQ to come up with a new kind of cloud index that you can track every day. So if you want to get super dorky about the charts, uh, I'll throw a link into the <laughs> post on TC about this. But it's one way to feel the pulse of uh, public sentiment about companies that often have private comps. So. Well, I'm not surprised, and I don't know what's going on exactly. I saw earlier this week that Eventbrite and SurveyMonkey, two companies that went out last month are down significantly. I think they're both off by like a third from their IPO prices. But those companies didn't seem to have um, maybe what it takes to have like a, you know, I was, I was frankly surprised that they had the offerings that they did. So um, I, I do think people are probably paying closer attention to the fundamentals. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, a lot of those companies didn't have the same growth profile that we'd expect uh, from tech companies that were running, if I recall correctly, um, kind of persistent gap losses. And so you can lose money if you're growing perfectly fine. But if you're not growing much, you really need to keep an eye on profitability. And I'm, I'm curious if we'll see a flip to uh, profits over growth in terms of what investors are looking for if we do head into a, a stronger correction. But again, it's still really early. We don't know. This stuff is... Is still cooking. So, you know, by the time you hear this, it may also have totally changed all over again. So if that that happens, we're sorry. (laughs) Well, another company that um, seemed to have an impact directly on um, an already publicly traded company was Qualtrics, which uh, just, uh, I guess, filed for its IPO at long last. This company was founded in 2002 and it competes with SurveyMonkey. And it's interesting, as soon as I think word got out that it had filed, SurveyMonkey's um, shares sort of started falling through the floor. Um, Alex, can you tell us a little bit about the IPO filing? Yeah. So this came out uh, just a little bit ago. And I have to say, normally I'm very rude about IPO filings because they tend to be a bit messy. This one's pretty good. I think. Um, just just as a data point, in the in the first half of 2018, they grew revenue from 131 to 184. So a reasonable pace of growth at that kind of scale. But their uh, their net loss fell from 3.7 to 3.4 million. So they're essentially break even and putting up pretty reasonable growth numbers, um, which I think is strong. I think they have a pretty good corporate history. I think if I recall correctly, they didn't raise for some time until uh, later on. So this could be kind of a big win uh, for the Utah space. And, um, going back in time, I interviewed the Qualtrics, uh, group, um, at a TechCrunch disrupt event back in the, uh, back in the day, maybe three or four years ago. And so it's kind of fun just for me on a personal note to see a company that I you know was talking to back when they were raising kind of their first external money, uh, go public. I'm enjoying it. Right. But Danny, um, what do you know about Qualtrics? What can you tell us about the Silicon slopes out there in Utah? 
Look, it's just another sign that I think Utah is sort of, uh, you know, has this history of being the sales center for Silicon Valley. And I think when you look at a company like Qualtrics, what you're really seeing is this region really has the ability to grow um, really great indigenous companies and have them get all the way to IPO. So I I think it's a great win for for Utah. And that's an ecosystem I think that venture capitalists are spending more and more time looking at. Yeah. Jules, do do you agree with that? Do you see a lot of deals coming out of Utah? I, lo- I love Utah as an area. We we just invested in Podium earlier this year in a review software company that we think we get very high hopes for. Um, I've spent a lot of time with Qualtrics over the years. We're, we're not an investor, but I'm haunted by them because I'm close <laughs> to Ryan and he's given me shirts and sweatshirts and notebooks and everything. So <laughs> I just, just I'm mean. surrounded by basically Qualtrics logos. And, uh, and uh, I tried to invest many times. He's got great investors already. But I, I think what's really unique about that company is the the, the profitability and cash flows, even though they're gap, slightly gap break even, they're actually, they, I think they generated over $30 million of free cash flow in, in either per quarter or per first six months. So this is generating a lot of cash and that's unique. You know, there's, everyone talks about unicorns. Uh, unicorns aren't that rare anymore. There's a ton of companies valued over a billion dollars. What is rare is a company growing very quickly and profitable. Those should really be the real unicorns. Qualtrics is one of them. Hey everyone, don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. I was going to say, this company, so we've talked about how long it took to raise um, venture funding. We should know it was 10 years. I think it was founded in 2002, and it didn't raise money until 2012. And they, didn't like, yeah, it was, they didn't need it. Was it. Pro- that, it was all I mean. secondary, I think. But then they raised a bunch of money, what, like at least $210 million, perhaps more. And the fact that they continue to be profitable is a big deal. Yeah, and uh, your numbers were correct. Their uh, free cash flow in the first half of this year was thirty, basically thirty-two million. But what's crazy is it was twenty-one million in the first half of twenty seventeen. So that's just a history of cash generation. That's just fantastic. Um, who would have thought you can do a software company and not lose money? Um, I thought that was banned. <laughs> so I'm encouraged well, by it. What, what, what I think is amazing, though, is that the founders, um, how much of the company they've actually retained. I mean, this is a 2002 company, 16 years in, and at least for the common stock, the founders collectively own, I believe they're brothers, uh, Ryan Smith and Jared Smith, but they own uh, 88% of the company. Um, and uh, that aggregates into a couple of, uh, you know, there's uh, voting share structures and other stuff here. But, uh, you know, that's the power of profitability in many ways, is that they did not take all of those different dilution uh, rounds across the history of the company. And so, you know, you look at uh, this in comparison to, say, Box, where Aaron Levy had a couple of points at IPO, um, you know, at least personally for them, I think it's an amazing win. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. And just in case you're curious if this is mostly a um, subscription or not business, it is definitely in the SaaS space because 136 out of 184 million of its uh, first half of this year revenue was recurring. So this is a SaaS company that is generating boatloads of cash while still growing and is roughly break even on a gap basis. Like we said, that's fantastic. I'm very impressed. Jules, um, this is maybe a dumb question, but IVP sometimes goes into companies that are also sort of established. They've been bootstrapped for a long time. How, how do the deals sort of tend to get structured? So it makes you know sense that the Smith brothers own so much of the company. Do employees tend to get like a very different looking package when I guess uh, you know they do sort of the companies take on equity funding so late in the game? 
Yeah, I don't think it's actually that different for okay. employees, uh, which is good. I mean, I think it depends on the founder. Some founders don't give stock options as generously as as venture back businesses, mm-hmm. but uh, but usually after you raise venture funding, you end up looking quite a bit like any other business that had done a traditional A or B or C. So okay. um, it's not that unusual. Um, but I love these businesses. Uh, I mean, what's what's unique is the growth and profitability. And you know, we had backed companies like ZipRecruiter, uh, like Grammarly uh, that was bootstrapped, um, like uh, Legal. Zoom was a business that's doing fantastically well now that we invested in years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, these are just incredible businesses. And, and there's, a, there's a saying that basically you can get financed either by venture capitalists or your customers, and customer financing is a lot less dilutive. So <laughs> right. um, that's what these companies are essentially doing. They're getting financed by their customers. Yeah. And it looks beautiful. I mean, the box example is canonical. That is the, the best example of what happens when you have to raise $100 million each year uh, and put it through a relatively inefficient sales machine if you're a SaaS business. So, um, but let's flip a little bit and talk about um, some big funds that are going to come out and fund everyone who's listening to this show. So, Danny, what's going on with Thrive? Uh, Alex, Thrive Capital announced this week that it had raised about a billion dollars across two funds uh, a $400 million early stage fund and a $600 million late stage fund. And that'll be the sort of six. Thrive Fund uh, since the firm debuted uh, a little less than 10 years ago. Um, so a huge, huge uh, kind of largest in their history, uh, a kind of a big win, uh, probably based on um, Oscar and a couple of their other uh, major portfolio companies. Yeah, and this is uh, famous because of uh, one of the Kushner brothers is part of it. And his brother, Jerry Kushner, is uh, in the White House. I still have that right, right? Yes, Josh Kushner. Yeah. There we go. Well, I, <laughs> I try to there. not bring politics into this show. We do a pretty good job of that. I just want to point out that's why you may have heard of Thrive Capital. Um, going back a little bit in time, their preceding fund, Fund 5, was I think $700 million. Their Fund 4 was $400 million. Fund 3 was $150. Fund 2, $40. Fund 1, 2009, $10 million. So that is enormous, I think, 100x increase in fund size over a uh, roughly 10-year period. So points to thrive. Um, and it, it's really you know, incredible when you consider, uh, you know, particularly that they're based in New York. Um, they have to be one of the largest funds now that's focused on New York and, and headquartered in New York. Um, you know, USV has famously decided to keep its fund sizes much more um, focused. Um, although, Connie, you might remember their last numbers. I don't recall off the top of my head. I don't, I don't, but I think you're right that they've probably are one of the biggest funds out there now. And it's, it's funny because I, I mean, I feel like I still remember when they appeared on the scene and I can't believe now that it's, you know, it was nine years ago. Um, another big funding though, or a big fund, I should say, um, that you guys probably paid a little bit of attention to is Tiger, Tiger Global Management, which is the 17 year old investment group, um, that's based, I believe in New York. Um, and, uh, it just closed. I, it, you, you know, the, the, this group has been raising big funds um, sort of serially over the years, but this is the biggest to date, $3.75 billion. Uh, and it told the Financial Times that it was only actively marketing it for six weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> pretty, pretty big coup. Um, so Tiger, I, I had written a story back in May saying, you know, if it must have been like talking to um, interested um limited partners back then because it's had a really good year. Uh, it was involved in Spotify. I think it had like at least a 7% stake in that company. And Spotify, of course, had that direct listing on the US market back in April. Uh, it was in an early investor in Glassdoor. Actually, I'm not sure if it was that early in Glassdoor, but it was an investor in Glassdoor, which was sold, um, I guess, earlier this year to a Japanese company, Recruit Holdings. Uh, it was also an investor in Eventbrite and SurveyMonkey. And as we've said, we're not sure how those are going to end up panning out. But, you know, 
better than them going out of business, I guess. Um, and the company also has a lot of um, international bets that are starting to pay off. The biggest being uh, an investment in Flipkart, which was um, uh, sold a majority stake of its business to um, Walmart earlier this year. And it's Tiger reportedly saw $3.3 billion off of uh, that deal wow. alone. So, um, yeah, you know, presumably it could have even raised more. Well, if you Jules, is that is Tiger somebody that you guys are seeing in, in many deals, or is it, uh, we almost never compete with Tiger? Oh, we is that see right? th- we see Thrive. Uh, a lot of respect for Josh. We're in hymns with him. You know, I, I just think he's done. It's so hard to create a a venture firm from nowhere. I mm-hmm. mean, we saw Andreessen Horowitz do it. We saw Social Capital do it for a while, but right. it looks like that's <laughs> kind of a different story now. Oh, yeah. um, that's brutal. Uh, well, so, that, was, that was sort of self-sabotaging, though, in a way well, it feels like. It, and it's sad because yeah. I think, I mean, I just think it's so hard to create a venture firm to scale. And mm-hmm. and really the only two now that I'd say have really done it successfully are um, Andreessen and Thrive. And uh, I think it's incredible. Um, Tiger's a different story. They were started out of a, you know, it's traditionally a hedge, hedge fund. fund. Mm-hmm. They're doing a lot of global investing um, companies outside the U.S. So, you know, sometimes we'll see them in a U.S. company much later than us doing hundreds of millions of dollars of investing. And mm-hmm. that's that's just a part of the market that is, I mean, it's almost like, it, you know, th- these are almost like public investments. It's just that the company has decided to to not go public because, but it's it's companies with huge revenues, multi-billion dollar valuations. It's not venture anymore. But you know, it's interesting. It does seem like it's kind of moved downstream more. I remember when it first started writing checks, it was writing really huge checks and I, everybody was sort of like, what are these guys doing? Um, but even today, it invested in a company uh, that's based in Lakeland, Florida called, I don't know how to say it, Metric, <laughs> M-E-T-R-C. I actually talked to the CEO, so I'm embarrassed to say I don't know how to pronounce Would the name. Would that just be Metric, um, it's do you a, think? Like just... It wouldn't be Murdoch. I guess without that, without couldn't they just include that? No, no, that's, I, that's not cool. The spelling is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a supply chain management company focused on cannabis, so seed to sale. So it's working with regulators. But it's a it's a five year old company. It does have a hundred employees, but it raised a fifty million dollar round from Tiger and Casa Verde Venture. So I'm just saying, it's a slightly earlier company. I think is Casa Verde Snoop Dogg's yeah, thing? Yes, yes. Oh my God. I okay, Snoop, I love it. I know, it's so funny. But I don't think Snoop's very in- involved. It's this guy who was a um, Goldman Sachs alum. Yeah. Uh, who's kind of running See, it See, that, that to me sounds like their seed program, no pun intended. I mean, just play play money for them, right? So <laughs> right, it's right, just, right. I don't, I mean, when you've got people, you know, with these massive funds and a lot of different interests, if they want to do a cannabis deal in Florida with Snoop Dogg, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's I, I, I can imagine awesome. the partner meeting decision around that probably wasn't as extensive as Flipkart. So I, ugh, you know, we're not really seeing them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, also just going back in time on Tiger a little bit, their last couple of funds were two and a half billion. So even though you're not seeing them too much with IVP, they certainly now have even more capital than they did before um, on hand to invest. So they're going to be out there pretty active. But amazingly enough, we have one more fund to bring up today because Bessemer uh, today, I think actually announced, uh, I think it's their 10th fund BVP X. And this is a $1.85 uh, billion vehicle. And then going back in time, uh, their ninth fund in 2015 was 1.6 billion. Their uh, eighth fund in 2011 was 1.6 and then 1 billion in 2007 and about a half billion in 2004. So definitely their biggest to date. And that's actually putting them right in range with IVP, which raised uh, 1.5 billion in September of 2017. So the same size. So same question again. Are you seeing Bessemer bounce around more than you are seeing Tiger? 
We do, actually. So I, I mean, I think that's I think what's really changed in the venture industry is that they're the the funds that are successful are getting bigger, and it's the industry is consolidating. You're seeing, um, you know, instead of seeing uh, competing with 30, 50 firms or seeing you know hundreds of Series A investors, you're really seeing the the market start to consolidate among you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 large players that put Bessemer in that bucket. Um, we're seeing them in later stage investments, even coming in after us, which is super unusual. Um, but it's the reality now. Um, we differentiate because all we do is late stage. So we think we'll be good at it because we focus. Bessemer does everything from seed to later stage, but um, they've got a great portfolio of SaaS companies. I like the people there and, um, you know, we'll we'll fight it out and then we'll be friends too. So. But you you both you both do SaaS and consumer facing deals. Yeah. Do you do fifty percent uh, enterprise, fifty percent consumer? Or it's as not a quite as a fund, we try to, okay. and uh, we, I mean that's kind of what's worked out. What's interesting is this year we've been eighty percent enterprise. Oh. So it's been a you know it's hard to predict, but um, we're just seeing so much amazing activity within the enterprise space within SaaS companies. Um, you know, we were part of the UI path round that, oh, that wow. uh, closed um, earlier, which is an incredible, incredibly fast growing company, the fastest growing software company uh, we've ever seen. Um, and, uh, you know, we've uh, we've really seen, you know, great companies, uh, you know, like Podium, like Keep Trucking earlier this year um, uh, in the SaaS space. And it's an area we're continuing to um, to lead great investments in. What are you seeing on the consumer side? I mean, so Hims is an interesting uh brand that we've talked about a little bit here. Um, are you sort of focused on like new brands or what are some of the bets that you've made recently that you think are especially interesting? Because it's kind of hard to get a handle on what's happening yeah. on the side of the world. It's frustrating because I, I mean, the first investment I worked on at IVP was our Twitter investment when the company was 22 oh, was people right? and, you know, social networking was burgeoning and it was super exciting. And then we did Snap in uh, 2013, I believe. So as you know, we've, we've had a history of backing some great social networks. And um, I think that market's really hard today. I don't think there really the are. I mean, the platforms are just so dominant. Mm -hmm. You see what's happened with Snap, with Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, taking share. And so um, it's frustrating. So you have to look for other areas within consumer. We've done a lot in fintech. We're in Coinbase. We're in TransferWise. Um, we've done a lot in um, a branded commerce is what we call it. So we're in Glossier, sure. mm -hmm. um, Lulu's. Hims is an example of that, and um, you have to have that that differentiation and find some other place to play within the consumer market. That's also what's shifted a lot of our dollars to enterprise because um, it's hard to find those consumer businesses. Where I think it's it's almost like instead of going to the core of the consumer internet, mm -hmm. we're we're on the fringes now. Mm -hmm. So we're finding things in industries like real estate, and we're in Compass. We're finding things, you know, within fintech. So it's it's uh, it's not the core. Core social is just really hard. And can I ask, you know, um, I think we've talked to other investors about this in the past, but I'm, I'm always sort of intrigued because the platforms are because we sort of have settled on a certain number of platforms that are successful and because a lot of the new brands reach people on those platforms. Is there sort of a saturation point where people are like, I can't hear about it, another cool new, you know, shoe brand? I mean, how do you sort of do you have to find new ways to reach customers? I mean, I think those channels have been – I think there's more – I think it's going to be a trend that just continues the mm -hmm. direct-to-consumer branded stuff. And I think I think those brands have to figure out ways to reach consumers outside of social media too. Social media has been such an effective channel for them. But um, 
you know, you think about all the products that people buy, you know, or used to buy at at department stores, or used to get advertised on TV for, or used to, you know, uh, um, used to see kind of in the physical world. And you know, there's a ton of really innovative, awesome products that now can be marketed to um, to consumers in a different way. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Hims is actually a great example of that. They're doing, you know, pharmaceutical men's wellness products that um, historically have been marketed to people, you know, over 50 years old on TV and kind of antiquated ways and they're reaching a different set of consumers with um, mm-hmm. with the product that's um, needed in the market. There's 100 million uh, men that suffer from either ED or hair loss mm-hmm. or have skin uh, skin issues where, where HIMSS can, can be helpful. And um, it's not a company I would have thought I would have invested in if you had asked me a year ago what I was going right. to back. But it's an incredible business with a passionate founder, a great team of individuals. And uh, a business that looks a lot like a software business with great margins and lots of retention. So um, I think we're going to see more businesses that are really unique in um, delivering a tailored brand and message to to consumers. Um, Jules, I know we have to sort of wrap up soon, but I also have to ask you, the last time I saw you, we were talking a little bit about SoftBank. And you know, it's, it's been a, it's a big threat to late stage investors writing these checks. You guys want to write a $50 million check. They come around and say, look, to the founders, you take three hundred million from us. <laughs> um, can you sort of comment on um, whether things have sort of slowed down? SoftBank is in the middle of an S storm right now. <laughs> it's uh, closely affiliated with um, you know this crown prince in Saudi Arabia. Nobody knows. There's a lot of controversy for obvious reasons we won't get into right now. But um, how does that impact? Do you feel like things are sort of? Um, do, do you feel any sort of a slowdown in the last couple of weeks where people are like trying to sort of figure out what's happening if they're still in the game? Um, I think it's good that entrepreneurs are starting to ask the question about where capital comes from mm-hmm. and the funds that back them because I think that's an important question. I think you know their employees care about that. I think they should care about it. Um, you know, I think that SoftBank's not going away. I think, and even with all the stuff with with MBS and Saudi Arabia, I, I think that um, you know it's got a lot of capital. Moss is an incredible uh, personality and person and an investor, and um, you know they're they're going to be an alternative. But I think it's appropriate to ask the question about where the yeah. capital comes from. On the topic of other large funds, just as, as a little bit of note, I think we pulled some data today on my team, and we found at least twenty VC funds this year that are at a billion or more. <laughs> So, yeah. Wow. In the uh, U.S. No, or global, international? Global, global, global. But like, you know, okay. there's a lot of U.S. names on here like Norwest Venture Partners Fund. That's 14. Lightspeed Venture Partners Select 3. BVP 10, like we discussed. Um, and, and on down the chart. So I, I'm curious, you know, even if SoftBank slows down uh, to our point about what they're going to do with the, the Saudi problem and probably no fun too, uh, if there's not just enough capital around to keep the game going at roughly the same pace. And I, I don't think we'll be able to answer that until it actually happens. But what a mark of the times that there's so much money today, that's even a possibility. Uh, and that's why I'm concerned about a slowdown, because I think there's just so much accreted risk at the moment that it's uh, it's worrisome, especially as the public market gyrates. Uh, but that's why I'm no fun at dinner parties. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone needs a good recession. So we'll see. I hope I hope it doesn't happen anytime soon. But, you know, it's healthy. And uh um, the problem is there's so much capital, though, it's going to be unclear whether, um, you know, even if we have a slowdown, people need to put that capital to work. So private markets are going to be strong. Well, on that note, we will hang back here next week. Thank you all for tuning in. And Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. And a big extra special thank you to our executive producer, Henry Picavet, our producer, Christopher Gates, Danny, Connie, and of course, you for sticking with us through all this time. Chat soon. <laughs>